Well, it is, uh, it is exciting to think that as I'm about to preach, so is Daniel, and uh, just trust that you are praying and rejoicing with us as we will see God, by his grace, grow that church and serve that area well. I ask you to continue to keep that in your mind and your heart. Well, well uh, join with me in prayer, if you will. Father, thank you for your word and for the grace that is found in it. Lord, I pray that you would give me the um, the ability to explain, at least in part, the beauty of Christ uh, in this narrative. And I pray that um, not simply would our minds be informed over the glory of Christ, but that we would have an increased desire um, to walk in a manner worthy of his name and that our hearts would be emboldened, that they would be encouraged, that they would be called to a higher level of faithfulness, that the, those who are apart from Christ would be called to consider his greatness and glory and those of us who go by his name uh, would live in a manner that would be pleasing to him. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I think each one of us here, if you've lived very long, you, you know that underestimating certain events can be uh, at least embarrassing, if not mildly hazardous. <clears throat> Every year we'd go to the beach that is uh, in Delaware at the time, Rehoboth Beach, and we'd go swimming as kids. And <clears throat> we used to love to get the rafts and to go out there and to catch the big wave that would be coming in. And, and you know, you'd look out at the into the ocean and you'd be, seeing these waves coming, and, and they looked fairly small. They didn't seem like that big a deal, and, and, and a lot of times they weren't. Uh, but then you'd see one that would kind of crest over the others, and you're thinking, wow, that might be a big one. And it always turns out that it never was as big as you, as you had hoped it would be. But then there'd always be that one that you could see a little bit of it, and then you'd look back and you'd say, well, it, it might be a big one, and, but, but it, it really didn't grab your attention. And then by the time it was upon you, and you figured out that you had totally miscalculated, and you were doing somersaults on the ocean floor between the sand and the shells, you realize, well, that, that was a lot more than I thought. Well, that, that's kind of analogous to the way I look at this passage with the baptism of Jesus. I, I have preached this before, and uh, like a lot of my prior sermons, you don't stay long in them. You open them up, you realize, wow, that's, boy, Lord, if you could use that, that's really displaying your greatness. But, but as I looked at this passage, I thought it's pretty clear <clears throat> initiation of Jesus in ministry, coming of the Spirit of God, but I didn't appreciate it like I do today. I underestimated the beauty of this passage, the way it reveals just the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, when you think about uh, what I trust, I have prayed, that you will gain some greater insight into the beauty of Jesus Christ so that your hearts will be emboldened and you'll be called to a greater degree of faithfulness as Christians, or at least challenged as non-Christians. You know, when you look at the beginning chapters, it's the birth narratives, right? Jesus, he's born of Abraham, which means that he's going to fulfill those promises, right? That he'll be a blessing to the nations. He's born of David which means he's in this kingly line, this eternal kingdom that God has promised will be under his reign. And then you have in the second half of chapter 1 that he's conceived of the Spirit. He's born of God. So you have this, these chapters in 1 and 2 of just his infancy, and then you hear nothing until chapter 3. Matthew then just leaps. This unique birth is going to give 
place to a unique ministry. And that's what we're looking at today. This beginning of Jesus' ministry. Martin Luther said that at the Jordan, the New Testament really begins. And what he's saying is now Christ is going to be displaying himself for the world. So my prayer is that I'm going to explain this triune, glorious baptism. And then some of the implications, both for the non-Christian, because there are always implications for the revelation of God toward the non-Christian and toward the Christian. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3. We'll look at uh, 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, as I said, this is going to explain a lot about Jesus. The first thing we see is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Jesus was incredibly obedient to the will of the Father in every way. Look at how Matthew begins, though. He says, then, then Jesus came from Galilee. Matthew uses the word then as just these kind of these um, these sequential markers, okay, after this, then this happened. So there's nothing fancy about it. You know the scene, last two weeks ago we studied it. John the Baptist, he's preaching repentance for forgiveness of sins. It's a radical conversion, what he was preaching. And he was calling people to be baptized, to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now people were coming from Judea and Jerusalem. They weren't coming for the ceremonial washings that many people did. But this was a radical conversion. This is totally different. What John was inviting to was to enter the kingdom. Hey, they had already been circumcised. They had already been drawn into the covenant. But there's something new. This explains why Jesus says you can't put new wine into old wineskins. This new kingdom is so radical, it's so different, it requires a massive conversion, transformation. And so these people were coming to be baptized. They are shedding off the old way, and we're now going to follow the Messiah. That circumcision is inadequate. We need to be baptized by faith, repentance of sins, to follow the Messiah. So this is going on. It says, then Jesus came. So in other words, the stirring of John's ministry began to spread out, and Jesus hears it, and he knows it's the sign to begin. And so he walks to John. This is no, you know, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. That's a 70-mile walk. That is not just going around the corner. Can you imagine the days it took for him to get there? And he's thinking, he's going to John. Jesus is coming with the express purpose of being baptized. He wants to be baptized by John. Now, you see John object, and rightly so. I mean, Jesus, we know in Scripture, is without sin, And so why is he being baptized for a repentance of sins? You know, John objects. John knows that Jesus is greater. He's more worthy. I mean, John already said he wasn't worthy to carry the sandal of Jesus. You know, John's the forerunner. Jesus is the Messiah. John baptizes with water. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. I mean, he sees Jesus coming. He says, you ought to be baptizing me. So why is Jesus coming to be baptized? What does it reveal about Jesus Christ? Well, implicitly in the text, 
You're not going to see it in chapter and verse, but you see it in an overall way. Jesus is affirming John's ministry, for sure. Jesus, you know, submitting himself to John's baptism is affirming that John is the forerunner of Isaiah, Malachi. So, so that, that encourages the ministry. And all those who have been baptized by John, it's affirming his ministry, but it also affirms his message. You do need to repent for the forgiveness of sins to enter the kingdom of God. He's affirming that, in fact, we're going to see in chapter 4, Jesus is going to preach the same thing that John did. But there's something more. Look with me, if you will, in verse 15. It says, Jesus said to him, let it be so for now. In other words, Jesus knows this is a unique time in redemptive history. Jesus will not always be submissive in this respect to John. Let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does this mean? This is Jesus' reasoning to John. And and what it's teaching us here is simply this. Actually, it's not simple. Uh, There are reams of information on this. It is to study for this passage, it is overwhelming how much is written on this verse in the following verses. But, but let, me, let me try to make it clear that Jesus saying, I must be baptized for it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus is making clear that it's both John and Jesus, by the way, for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus being baptized is his clear Evidence that he is faithful to follow the plan of God to be a servant and savior to the world. That Jesus is committing to follow the will of God to be baptized as a demonstration of him identifying with a people that he would save. Remember the word righteousness just means conformity to God's moral will. Jesus in every way is going to be obedient, even in baptism, so that he can be qualified so to speak, to be a perfect servant and mediator, to save the Jewish nation and to save all people. Now, this wasn't lost on John. John sees Jesus coming. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, they saw Jesus coming as the Lamb. So think about in the Old Testament, the sacrificing of the Lamb, kind of the representation of the Lamb, bearing the sins of the people, The lamb is sacrificed on behalf of people. So Jesus sees himself clearly as a representative for the nations, for Israel first, and ultimately for the nations. I will be their servant who will suffer and die for them according to the perfect plan of God. Jesus is coming these 70 miles to say, yes, Father, I volunteer. I am coming to walk out your plan with perfection to save a people for your name and for your glory. That's what Jesus is displaying here. A radical obedience, a perfect righteousness, following the plan of God in every way. And then notice what happens. It says the heavens are opened. So Jesus is baptized. He humbles himself. He identifies himself with us, with absolute sin. Can you imagine John when he looks in the face of Jesus who had never sinned? Can you imagine his face? I'm not thinking it's the corny 50 movies where there's a light behind his head and his face is kind of glowing. But I've got to believe that over life and over sins, our face does show the weathering of suffering and our own sin. And Jesus would have not sinned. Can you imagine the peace, the harmony, the perfect communion they enjoyed with God? I mean, his face would have been, I would believe, beautiful. And John sees and says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. 
But Jesus wants to fulfill all righteousness. He is the one. He's the servant of Israel now, sent by God to save. Heavens are opened up. Now, we don't exactly know who saw and heard what. When you look at the Gospels as a whole, it doesn't seem like this experience was privatized for Jesus. It seems like there was some public disclosure that, that others would have heard and others would have seen. And, and when it says that the heavens were opened, Matthew is saying, well, Mark says the heavens were torn. They were ripped. You know, in this day, in this age, the sky was seen as a solid. And so it had to be torn for heavens to bring forth revelation. In any time in Scripture, very few times do you see the heavens are opened. Men do not open heavens. Man cannot rip open heaven to peer into the plan of God. God rips open heaven, and the only time the heavens are opened is when divine realities enter our human experience. You see it in Genesis 7 with the flood. The heavens were opened, God's judgment came down. You see it in Acts chapter 7. The heavens were opened, Stephen, who is being stoned, sees Christ standing at the right hand of God. So anytime the heavens are open, revelation comes, either in judgment or mercy. In this case, it's mercy. The heavens are open and the Spirit comes down. Now you notice, this gets all kinds of airtime. the Spirit comes down like a dove and rests upon Jesus. Now I, I want to say the dove is significant, not that significant. I do want to say it has a significant place in understanding the passage. But don't miss the point. The Spirit of God descended, not the dove. The Spirit of God descended like a dove. So the analogy to the dove is more in the way the Spirit descends rather than who or what descends. The bigger issue in your mind right now is Jesus is this, he is volunteering to the Father to walk out this servant sacrificial role to identify with sinful people to save them. The heavens open, the Spirit comes down. Why? Wasn't Jesus conceived by the Spirit? I mean, the Spirit isn't making Jesus somebody different. That's heresy. That's where a lot of heretics Heretics went offline, thinking at the baptism, Jesus was made the Son of God. No, Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. So what's going on here? Well, at a minimum, it's evidencing to us, to Jesus, that the Spirit is confirming Jesus to be the servant that God had promised. And I'll draw in just a minute to Isaiah 42. The suffering servant will have the Spirit to walk out this plan of redemption. There's a lot to that. That the Spirit is equipping Jesus to do the work of ministry. The Spirit is giving power to, to the humanity of Christ to walk out all that God has called him to do. Now, you, you know, Israel was also a servant of God. Israel was supposed to walk out what it meant to be a son of God, displaying to the world the glory of God that the nations would come to Israel. But Israel failed repeatedly. Adam failed, right? So did Israel fail. And where did Israel fail? They failed in the desert, was a particular failure. They come out of Egypt, and they failed to the temptation of Satan and idolatry. And so Jesus now has been given the Spirit, and guess where he's going to go in the very next passage? He's going to go to the desert. And who's he going to meet there? He's going to meet Satan there. And who's he going to defeat there? He's going to defeat Satan there. I mean, Matthew has a clear intention for us to see Jesus as this new Israel, taking upon himself the responsibility of Israel bearing the sin so that he will suffer and die for us. In fact, in Isaiah 42, we read, Behold my servant, this is what Isaiah, 
whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. You see the similarity in language. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on earth. This is the servant of Israel. This is the servant of God. This is Jesus Christ. Confirmed. So you have Jesus. Think about this scene now. You've got to... You almost have to startle yourself into being aware of the depth of this. Jesus is coming faithfully, voluntarily to fulfill this plan of God, willingly, joyfully before the Father. You have the Spirit now descending on Jesus like a coronation of sorts. I mean, it's like a coronation. The Spirit of God is now upon the Son of God to carry out the plan of God. This is incredible. Hey, folks, we're just around the amphitheater watching, overwhelmed with this. And then what happens? This voice comes out of heaven. We're not told whose voice it is. The only other time a voice came out of heaven was at the giving of the law. Now, the voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So we know it's the voice of God. God expressing pleasure and conferring sonship on Jesus. Saying, I accept you as my son to bear this role of servant savior for the world god conferring his acceptance confirmation yes you are the spotless lamb you are the one to do this work you are the savior of the world you will bear the sins of the people you will reconcile all things to me you will reign over the world you will display my glory in a way no one ever could That's the voice coming to confirm. And here we are, just standing. This baptism, Jesus walking this distance, saying, yes, I am ready. The Spirit confirming, equipping, strengthening. God giving the validation. He will be the one, and he will do it, and my pleasure rests upon him. It's a profound saying. I mean, for the non-Christian here, at a minimum, this helps you understand that the Christian is not bullheaded or narrow-minded when we proclaim Jesus to be the only way. Uh, the the Christian, Christian faith has always taught that it is in and through Christ that we are drawn to the Father. So for the non-Christian, this is where it is in the Bible, this triune. People also wonder, where do you get the Trinity? Well, the Trinity is being displayed here by the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. This is one of the passages that we would look to understand how God, being one, expresses himself through three persons. But for the Christian here, and I would just say one more thing to the non-Christian, I would say that this same Jesus, as we're going to see tracing out through Matthew, will ultimately suffer and die. He will, of course, be raised. Why? Because the Father has anointed him with his pleasure. He will be raised and he'll come back as king. And so it is, you are to be mindful of this. This is kind of a, a shot across the bow, if you will, for the non-Christian. This Jesus, this suffering servant, it is right for now, Jesus says. Let it be so for now. It will not always be so. But for the Christian here, let me just draw your mind to a bunch of things I was thinking through. And these are just applications that I'm, I'm trying to draw to you because <clears throat> Jesus is the quintessential servant of particularly Isaiah. But he's the servant of God. But we are called to be what? 
we are also servants of God. That if we've gone through the baptism waters with Christ, we are sons and daughters of God, and we are servants of God. And that Christ is the example by which we now follow. That these things aren't unique to Christ alone, but they apply to all of his people. So let me try to tease out some of these things for you to consider. Number one, I would say for the Christian, uh, this is both a benefit and a charge, by the way. I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you with the same things. Uh, Number one would be reminding you the baptism of Jesus, reminding you of the importance of baptism. Jesus has identified with sinful humanity by submitting himself to baptism. He humbles himself, he identifies with the sinner, and he's baptized. And by that, he unites himself to us. So in our baptism, we are united to Christ. In our baptism, we are united to one another. You know, some of us want to rush into baptism with perhaps with children that are very young. We would urge caution in that. You know, we we hesitate here at this church to baptize children when they're very young because we don't always believe that they have understood the nature of repentance, which is fundamental to being drawn into the kingdom. Now, there's no scripture that says wait for baptism. I understand that. It's pure pastoral prudence. That's what it is. It's experience seeing a lot of kids being baptized at 12, wanting to be rebaptized at 18 and 20 when they begin to get it. You know, they begin to see sin. They're tempted by sin. They fall in sin. And now they know what repentance is. So that's kind of the idea behind it. We don't hold it up as the new thing to do. We're just trying to exercise pastoral prudence. So we don't want to rush into this baptism when you see all that it entails. But at the same time, you don't want to refuse baptism. For many of you, you've been baptized Perhaps as children, didn't mean anything to you then, doesn't mean anything to you now. There ought to be a, there ought to be a true baptism because of the nature of what it represents, that, that Jesus identifying with us in the water, we want to pass through the water. So baptism, while it is an ordinance and it does not save, it is very significant. And I want to lift up the value in your mind. But secondly, from this baptism, the incredible truth is that you, those who have been baptized by faith, that you are a new creation. And let me explain what I mean by this. You know, you look at the players in this scene. You have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Spirit. You have a voice from heaven. You have the imagery of a dove. What does it draw your mind to? Or what could it draw your mind to? I mean, for me, I I went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. You know, you have God speaking. You have in later Revelation, Jesus being the Word of God. You have the Spirit, what, hovering over the waters. In fact, in in the Targums, which is the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, rabbis translated Genesis 1-2 by the Spirit fluttering over the waters like a dove. So, So what we're to see in this baptism is this baptism is the beginning of a new creation. God is recreating his people. It goes along very simply with Jesus saying you must be born again. You literally have to be recreated. That, that this, this redemption that Jesus is bringing is going to change the person who goes through the waters by faith in Christ. You will be different. I mean, you'll be forgiven, not just in Genesis chapter 1. I thought about Noah. Noah went through the waters. Noah let go of a dove. Again, I, I'm just showing these types where God is just giving us these pictures through his Old Testament. And and Noah is given the same promises that Adam was given. And and Noah was going to begin a new people. It's like a new creation again. Or you have the Exodus. When Moses led the people through where? Through the waters. 
the baptism of Israel, becoming the children of God. Jesus now is this new Moses, leading a new exodus, a new creation. I mean, the old has passed. The new has come. Folks, many of our lives are train wrecks. And yet, yet this is reminding us we've been made new. We've been forgiven. We've been adopted. I mean, you get to start again, is what he's saying. You have a second chance with God through repentance and faith. Where you're adopted, you're forgiven, you're drawn in. The train wreck that, you've, that you have created is not held up before you anymore. You've been made new. And this is what the baptism is pointing to. The baptism is also pointing to the nature of delighting in Jesus. I mean, look at the Father saying, in whom I am pleased. That God is pleased in Jesus. And that if you and I are in union with Jesus by faith, then God is pleased with us. God can't reject us in union with Christ. This is why it's so central that we believe by faith we're drawn into a oneness with Christ. I mean, how comforting is it to know? Unlike all other religions, when you've got to wait till the end, and then the answer comes, and you're just hoping, that now, in union with Christ, we know what the Father thinks of Jesus. He accepts him. He loves him. He is pleased with him. And those of you and I who are in union with him have that rest, that assurance, that comfort. Not laziness, as we're going to say, but we have a comfort with him. Now, what pleases you? What do you delight in most? I mean, many of us in this affluent culture, we delight in the things of the world. I don't want to tell you, you know, some of us just love movies. We love movies. We love technology. We, we, we love cars. We love girls. We love everything. What do you love? What do you love most? I wouldn't say don't love those things. I mean, in fact, that just shows you that you do have a heart. You do have affections. You do have emotions. I wouldn't simply say don't love those things. I would just simply say, how much do you love Christ in comparison to those things? Is Christ not more worthy? Is he not more glorious? So don't just, I I don't want to be one of those preachers that say, don't, don't, don't. I just want to make sure that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, Paul says. So, So the idea is, if you can love a movie, do you love movies more than Jesus Christ? And then would you not agree with me? That is a problem. I mean, it's just a problem to, just on a, on a logic level, it's a problem. I mean, movies pass, you forget about it. Or some of us delight, maybe not in the things of the world, we, we delight in our own righteousness. You know, I think about the Pharisee in, in Luke 15, who thanked God, he was a religious man, he thanked God, he just thanked God that he wasn't like all these other people. So he delighted in who he was in comparison to other people. And I would just, I would just ask you, I would call you to delight in Christ. And if you don't delight in Christ, then why? Just ask yourselves why. Is he not glorious? Is he not righteous? Is he not everything to you? And ask God through the power of the Spirit to give you renewed affections for the Savior. I would also say that the baptism of Jesus reminds us of our dependency upon the Spirit of God. That we are wholly and completely dependent upon the Spirit. Jesus did not begin ministry until the Spirit came upon him. Even though conceived in the Spirit, he was baptized. He, he, uh, the Spirit descends upon him and then he begins his ministry, both in the desert and then his preaching ministry. And, and so for the Christian here, you have to recognize that if you're going to be baptized, everything is dependent upon the Spirit for you. There is no ministry apart from God's filling you with the Spirit. 
Do you understand that? Jesus himself said to his disciples, who had trained with Jesus for three years, he says, wait here until you receive power. You can't do anything until you have the power of the Spirit. Now, we're not Pentecostal here, so sometimes we get a little bit nervous when we talk about the Spirit. But folks, the Spirit is just the Spirit of God that is given to the believer, evidencing who they are in Christ, right? His Spirit bears witness to our spirit that what? We are children of God. The Spirit in the believer confirms that we are sons and daughters of God. The Spirit equips us to do the work of ministry. That we as Christians, because of this baptism, are saying, God, fill me with your Spirit. You know, it says in one gospel, when Jesus goes into the desert, he went full of the Spirit. God, would you fill me with your Spirit so I may do the works that you have for me? That you cannot, not just doing the works of ministry, how about obeying the commands of God? The Spirit in you is the one convicting you of sin. The Spirit in you is the one turning your eyes from pornography. That you're saying, yes, God, give me the Spirit. If I set my heart on the flesh, what am I going to do? I'm going to die. If I set my, if I set my heart on the Spirit, then I'm going to live with peace and harmony. So the Spirit of God is in you, working you, conforming you to look like the Son who we've just spoken about in these baptismal waters. Okay, fifth. I think it's fifth. The, uh, the baptism reminds us of the place of humility. This is really important. Arrogance runs rampant in the church. You look at John. John was profoundly humble. He says he's worthier. John's whole ministry was nothing apart from Christ. John, satisfied in Jesus, says he must increase, I must decrease. John is humbled before Christ. Look at Christ. Christ humbles himself under John's ministry. Christ humbles himself by being identified with us. I mean, the Christian is pursuing humility for its glory. There is joy in humility. There is a joy in recognizing our brokenness. That if you've been baptized as a Christian, you, you, you have to have been humbled, recognizing you need him. Folks, you cannot be a servant of God and not be humble. Servants are humble. That's what we are. That's what Jesus was. That's what we're called to be. Pursue humility. I mean, remind yourself of who you are and how incredibly in need you are. That's the purpose of communion every month. Constantly reminding you need a Savior. You you didn't need the gospel simply when you were 12 and you walked to the front and asked Jesus to come in your heart. You need the gospel every day. You need the reality of the gospel and the power of the Spirit in you, conforming you to the image of Christ. I would say this as well, that this baptism teaches us, the believer, that you will have a life of suffering. I mean, Jesus, when he, walk, when he was walking to the waters, he knew what the baptism was for. It was a baptism into a ministry that would end at the cross. He knew that. That these, baptism, these baptismal waters were waters of death for him. And they're waters of suffering for us. Didn't Jesus say to James and John, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? In other words, baptism involves suffering. If all who want to live a godly life, if you don't want to live a godly life, you may not be persecuted, I admit that. But all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. So there is suffering. But we're going to see the redemption of Christ in our suffering. And, and then last, I would say this, that this baptism displays to us what the nature of this church ought to be. Now, let me explain what I mean. You have the Father and the Son and the Spirit in this triangular, really this triangular love, if you will. 
You, you have the Son submitting to the Father. You have the Spirit upholding Christ. And, and you have the Father conferring blessing and pleasure on the Son. You have this mutually self-giving love one to the other. You have this, this absolute willingness to subordinate and submit to the other. You have one making the other the center of his world. The greatest or one of the greatest problems within this world, but also within this church, is a degree of self-centeredness. That we want to be the center of everything. You see it in people's conversations. I mean, they draw the conversation to themselves. They, they, they use situations or stories, and, and, and they will find pleasure in you as you make them the center of your world. It's just simple self-idolatry is what it is. And I tell you, all of us are faced with it. This massive self We want to be the orbit around which people fly. And you don't see this in the Trinity. Cornelius Plantiga, a theologian in uh, Calvin Seminary, writes this. He says, He says, the persons within God exalt each other. They commune with each other. They defer to each other. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelopes and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. Now, if we are being baptized into Christ and into these waters, should not this triune relationship be what marks the church? This overwhelming sense of concern with you being the center of my life and me being the center of your life, that that I'm not trying to be the center of your life. I don't want to be. I don't want to be made the center of everybody's life. I want to constantly decrease that they may increase. That is the nature of of this baptism. For the Christian, this is what we're moving toward. This is what Timothy Keller wrote in his book, King's Cross. The Trinity is utterly different. Instead of self-centeredness, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are characterized in their very essence by mutually self-giving love. No person in the Trinity insists that the others revolve around him. Rather, each of them voluntarily circles and orbits the others. And then think about your conversations. Think about your concern. Think about how you value or devalue other people in your midst here in this church. I mean, it's profoundly challenging to remove ourselves off the throne of everybody else's life. But that's what the church is to be. A picture, it's really what our marriages are to be, actually. Marriages are also a picture of the triune relationship. Submission, equality, service, sacrifice. Joyful in all those ways. So let me just take a minute and pray for us. You, you, you see this glorious picture of the sun coming forward. And, and in Matthew, the story's just about to take off, right? So next week we have the temptation in the desert. The following week, Jesus launches into ministry. But this is where it all begins, right? Jesus has says, yes, I'm the one. The Spirit has conferred upon him power and authority, confirmation. The Father has accepted the Son as a worthy servant through whom he will save the world. Now we, who by faith follow him, are called to walk in like manner. And I've tried to appeal to you on these issues. So would you pray with me right now? I'll pray for us as we're going to celebrate communion. And, uh, yeah. and then if there are those of you who have struggled with this, uh, even as a believer, then come forward. We would love to pray with you. For those who are non-Christian and you've been 
uh, challenged by the words that I've said, uh, then I just come forward. There are elders around. There are pastors. We'll be up front. We would love to chat with you about this. So let me, let me lift this up now before the Lord. Father, thank you uh, for the glory of this text, for the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ receiving the Spirit, receiving your pleasure to carry forth the role as Savior. Father, would you wake us to this glorious reality that we might uh, live as new creations, that we may delight in Christ more intently and more deeply, that we might depend upon the Spirit, thereby doing things. As Jesus said, you'll do the things that I've done and even greater things that we would pursue humility, reflecting Christ within us, that we would embrace suffering, know that you will redeem the suffering that we undergo for your glory, for our benefit, and that you would also give us power through your Spirit in us to not need to be the center of everybody's world, that, that, that we would that we would seek to decrease, that others may increase, that that in our relationships here in this church, that that they may see this triune relationship of submission and service and sacrifice and love, that that might be the fabric of this church. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.